Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Finally, after years of civil rights struggles and battles won, the tremendous success that the women's movement has achieved is evident all around us. Whether it is on television, in sports, in professional and business settings, in the political arena, the huge presence of women is significant. The highly visible presence of women in today's world represents a night and day change from what we experienced in this country just 40 years ago. What accounts for this growth and the success of women in changing the political, cultural, and societal landscape in this country is a question of importance for all of us to consider. Tonight we are going to discuss the many successes and the factors which explain these civil rights victories. Joining us in this discussion are Dr. DeAndre Rose, who is an assistant professor and director of research at the Sanford School of Public Policy and at the Duke University Department of Political Science, and Professor Lydia Lavelle, a professor at the NCCU School of Law who teaches a class on women and the law and is also the mayor of Carborough. So to each of you, welcome to uh, the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Okay, we want to thank you for uh, sharing this time uh, with us, and it's uh, a, a distinct honor uh, for me to have you on the show. And let me just start out uh, by congratulating Dr. Rose on her recent book, uh, Citizens by Degrees. Um, so we're going to go with you to begin this discussion by talking to our audience about the significance of the title okay. that you've chosen for your book. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And I should start by just thanking you, Professor Joyner, Professor Dawson, for having us here today. So the book is titled Citizens by Degree. And so I start by thinking really seriously about the difficulty that American women have historically had when it came to accessing full citizenship. So I'm thinking of that not simply as citizenship according to like birth or whether someone's naturalized into a country's uh, polity, but thinking a little more deeply about whether or not someone has full social, economic, and political inclusion in society. And so I would argue that having access to higher education and the capacity to earn college degrees was really an, an empowering force in the development that American women have made since the 1960s. So for me, those degrees have helped to confer a level of advanced citizenship for women. Okay. And how do you, well, historically, mm -hmm. women have been in, in the political uh, system in, the, in this country. Mm -hmm. Women have always been at the back end of it. It was not until uh, 1920 
that the Constitution was amended to give uh, to women the uh, right to uh, to vote, mm-hmm. uh, even though uh, African American men uh, received that right as early as uh, 1868 mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, 14th Amendment and the uh, 13th and then the 15th uh, Amendment. Uh, what explains that failure hmm. to fully incorporate women into the political dynamics of this country? Mm-hmm. I would argue that it has been a combination of Uh, family calculus, so some of the private decisions that we've had, so a lot of social norms, this idea of women's place um, being primarily the private sphere as opposed to the public sphere for many years, but then also institutional discrimination. So for many years, um, in terms of having access to the various avenues of achieving political power, women have been marginalized. But then also when we think of some of the forces that tend to promote greater inclusion in politics. So for political scientists, we recognize higher education as a powerful determinant of political engagement. And historically, women have been left out of higher ed institutions at alarming rates and it was just you know the way things were done so for many years you know in terms of private decisions families had interesting calculus by which they determined how they would support their kids when it came to pursuing higher education so for many families it made a lot more sense to invest in supporting a son's higher education as opposed to the daughters because the sons were more likely to become the breadwinners of their families there's an interesting asterisk though that we have to put on that fact because it was actually different for many families of color. So for a lot of families of color they would actually choose to invest in their daughters because the daughters were more likely to find work in segregated schools whereas a son who had a degree could very possibly be expected to work as a porter you know on a train as opposed to being able to find um, other types of professional jobs with to use his degree for but then also institutions were very they very systematically discriminated on the basis of gender and so they might say we've got a hundred spots in this incoming class and we'll reserve 10 of them for you know quote-unquote special groups so maybe we'll have you know, four African-Americans, and we'll have four women, and we'll have a Catholic student and a Jewish student. And that was par for the course and totally legal well into the 1970s. So this is such a fascinating area, and I'm looking forward to doing a deeper dive into some of your findings in your book. Uh, But I have to ask, what what led you to want to explore this topic and and to write this book? Mm. It started off as my graduate school research. And so I remember sitting, I was doing coursework in my third year, and I was really irritated because I felt like I should be beyond coursework by that point. So I had an (laughs) attitude. And so I'm sitting in this class, and we're talking about the strides that women have made in the U.S. since the 60s. And the professor is ticking off all of these different items on the board. So, you know, changing social norms, um, changing demographics, so higher age of first marriage, declining fertility rates, um, just all of these interesting, um, the women's rights movement, all these other forces. But nobody was talking about public policy. So I'm thinking there has to be, you know, maybe there's something here. If we explore the question of whether U.S. lawmakers played a role in helping to expand access and so that's what really got me hooked on the idea. Okay. Uh, Professor Lavelle, you, you teach uh, uh, women, you don't teach women in the law. <laughs> at, uh, I thought you had a course on women in history. We've, we've ha- we have that course, uh, but I, I, I've never taught it. 
Um, but I am the Women's Law Caucus advisor, and, and I've spoken a lot on state and local government and you know issues of of gender identity. I would say, but not not necessarily focusing on women. Well, let me just raise my question: is the significance of uh, Dr. Rose's uh, research and her publication? Uh, how how does that impact? that teaching and work that uh, you do at uh, North Carolina Central. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that question. And and I should mention that, you know, one of the I'm really delighted that we were able to be here today because um, I met Dr. Rose and um, I, I got a book and, <laughs> and I read it and I really enjoyed reading about it and the history of how public policy and higher education, you know, these, these different acts we're going to talk about, how they kind of um, co- coexist, if you will, with the case law and everything that we're familiar with uh, in terms of, of over the years. Um, but in any event, I, um, I, I, so I thought it was important for us to be here and talk about that. Uh, I, I, in particular, am interested in, in, in hearing us discuss, uh, you know, some of these bits of legislation and, and how they led to where we are today. Um, I, it's, we didn't really get into it when, when Dr. Rose and I spoke earlier, but She'll talk a little bit about Title IX of the Civil Rights of the Higher Education Amendments in 1972, and how um, you know we then had access to you know programs of higher education um, regardless of sex. And so today, in my class, you know, with with my gender studies, if you will, sexual identity class, uh, we're seeing that uh, interpretation of what sex is and and then what gender is, uh, kind of working off of that earlier work that we'll hear about in her book. So that's how I find an interesting tie into my current research. You know, the uh, civil rights movement, uh, which I guess depending on where you are in age, uh, started in the 40s and then morphed into the uh, the 50s and then gained additional prominence uh, in the uh, 60s with the uh, organization of uh, SNCC and some of the youth youthful civil rights uh, organizations uh, helped to open up an avenue for uh, successful women advocacy uh, in uh, the rights of, uh, of women. Uh, and I think we talk about the uh, women's rights movement that began with, uh, what was it, Betty Friedan mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of the uh, older mm-hmm. uh, advocates and then the uh, burn the bra uh, <laughs> movement. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and people know about those distinctions. But I want to go back to a point that, that, that you made that with respect to higher education, even earlier than that, that there was in the African-American community this push to get women, mm-hmm. the, the, the females in the family, educated when that push wasn't really being promoted among the white community. Can mm-hmm. you kind of talk about that uh, a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I think in this particular story, the debt to the, the African-American civil rights movement is apparent, and it's a really large part of the history of women's educational access in the United States. So thinking about the 1950s, which was really post-GI Bill, this moment when women were invited into this new relationship with the federal government, whereby they could expect to receive some financial support for pursuing degrees in a way that a whole generation of American men, um, again with an asterisk because there was so much discrimination for African-American GIs in particular, but the GI Bill really helped to open up higher education for low-income and lower-middle-class Americans who had never thought about higher education. 
So then you have, in the 1940s and 50s, lawmakers who are trying to get a federal scholarship program passed, and they always flounder because of race. And so it's really this idea that the southern states were nervous that the federal government would give money to their schools, but then expect to be able to tell them how to desegregate when they were, you know, with all deliberate speed after Mm -hmm. Brown versus Board, desegregating. So Adam Clayton Powell, who was a congressional representative from New York City as an African-American, was an advocate for civil rights. And he worked with the NAACP to craft this really fascinating non-discrimination writer that he would apply to basically all social policy proposals during the era. And so when the scholarship proponents from Alabama, incidentally, tried to get their programs through, the Powell Amendment, as it was called, always ended up basically torpedoing the proposals. So when lawmakers after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik in 1957 into 1958 um, gave that yielded an opportunity to put higher educational support back on the table, there was also this question of whether or not a Powell amendment would, would thwart the efforts. And so you know there was this interesting dance in 1958 over civil rights and the inclusion of African Americans in this particular policy that did so much to open up access for women in terms of making college affordable. Then you fast forward to the 1970s and the women's, um, there were a number of women who actually you know, were the policy entrepreneurs who created Title IX, and they used the 1964 Civil Rights Act as a template. So they actually took the language from the Civil Rights Act and swapped out, you know, they, they inserted education to specify that there would be non-discrimination in educational policy or programs receiving federal education support. And they also swapped out, uh, you know, color, race, color, national origin, and put in gender or sex. And so it's interesting if we think about in terms of the policy design, but then also the politics of higher ed policy, the debt that we owe to the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And could you also, you know, both of you talk about the failure to include this protection for women in the Civil Rights Act? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'll get to that in just a second, and maybe Dr. Rose will add on it. But I wanted to just jump back to this first act she was talking about in 1958 that really opened the door to, to women as well as men um, in, um, on the heels of the Jai Bill before, before the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and, the, and the unique name it had, it was the National Defense Education Act. And that's how it was sold to the public. And, you know, I found it interesting when I was looking at her book about the person who came up with the name of that act, and he said, I invented that god-awful title, the National Defense Education Act. If there are any words less compatible, really, intellectually, in terms of what is the purpose of education, it's not to defend the country, it's to defend the mind and develop the human spirit, not to build cannons and battleships. It was a horrible title, but it worked. It worked. How could you attack it? And so, you know, I think that the success of the National Defense Education Act and, and Dr. Rose goes into this uh, in great detail in her book. Uh, it was the result of a lot of give and take, a lot of behind doors kind of um, exchanges of, of information and lobbying between different members of the, the legislature. Whereas by the time we get to you know the Civil Rights Act, uh, then we're talking about, right, we're both members of Congress are of the same party, as is the president. So we also have kind of a different political climate, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I appreciate your... Uh 
acknowledgement of uh, Adam Clayton Powell. One of my heroes, mm-hmm. uh, one of four African-Americans who served in Congress at that time, uh, but rose to be the chair of the uh, House Education and Welfare uh, Committee because of his tenure. Uh, in the uh, in, 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 in the Congress, and that's why he was able to impose the Powell Amendment rather than uh, being able to get votes from other members of Congress to uh, to put it in. But as the chair, he had absolute power to uh, kill any uh, legislation uh, that uh, that uh, was uh, pending uh, in Congress at the time. We're going to have to take a break uh, right now. We, we're talking with Dr. Rose and uh, Professor Lavelle about the uh, success of women uh, in society and the development of women in our society, particularly with uh, respect to the role of uh, higher education. Uh, stay with us, and we'll be uh, right back to uh, continue this discussion. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back. Uh, We're talking with... uh Dr. Deandra Rose, who is the assistant professor and the director of research at the Sanford School of Public Policy, and uh, she's with the uh, Duke University Department of Political Science. Uh, professor Lydia Lavelle, I guess Maya Lydia uh, Lavelle, who's also a professor at NCCU School of Law, and we want to talk about, or we are talking about, women, uh, political, and professional uh, successes uh, over the years, given all of the uh, barriers which were uh, imposed uh, upon that, uh, that relationship. Um, Title IX, mm-hmm. uh, a big uh, piece of the uh, pub federal governmental policy. Uh, how did that develop? So, you know, I guess for starters, I would argue that Title IX is part of a one-two punch in an assault against sex discrimination in U.S. higher education. And it mirrors this long-standing tradition of social policy in the United States whereby we often have some sort of quote-unquote carrot 
where the government will provide some sort of resource or benefit. But then oftentimes we can't trust institutions to implement those fairly, so the government circles back around with some regulatory policy that creates some additional guidance for how to do that fairly. So Title IX was really the stick that came to accompany the carrot of federal financial aid from the mid-20th, or the, the 1950s and 60s. And so Title IX, uh, you know, was this interesting development, and it was it was very timely. And so it started off with this woman named Bernice Sandler, known as Bunny Sandler, who recently passed away. And she was an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland, and she was offered, or well, there was this opportunity to pr apply for a job as a permanent professor in her department. Her male colleagues who were adjuncts were all invited to apply, and she wasn't, and she was really upset about it. So finally she asked a supervisor, and the person said, well, look, I'll tell you, you just come on too strong for a woman. You know, that's what it is. And she was really upset, and she was hurt. And as she grappled with what happened to her, she started to realize that, you know, this wasn't just a one-off, unfortunate Thing. You know, it was really part of a, a larger pattern. And so she filed a claim based on an executive order, I believe it was 11246, that prohibited sex discrimination among co um, federal contractors. And because the University of Maryland is a, a, a government, you know, supported state institution, then it fell under this requirement to hire fairly. She sent her claim to a number of people, including Edith Green, who was a member of Congress from Oregon. Uh, Representative Green was another one of those very underrepresented pioneers like Adam Clayton Powell, who really spoke up for women you know, in other underrepresented groups. Uh, she was known as Mrs. Education in Congress. People also called her the Wicked Witch of the West, so it depends <laughs> on who you ask. <laughs> and so she found this, and she decided to convene con hearings about sex discrimination. And very soon in the hearings, it came clear that higher education was an area where there were so many infractions that the government ought to pay attention and maybe take action. And that's how Title IX came about, actually. So a lot of people who say, you know, I marched for Title IX in 72, that's not true. You know, it was really a small group of political elites uh, led by Edith Green, uh, who came up with a really nice strategy for, for moving it through the process. And so, you know, that actually raises a, a question that I have when you think about, you know, how it um, how it originated and you talk about these, you know, folks who were elite. When we think about the progress that's been made based on this legislation and the and the various policies, what are your thoughts about the percentage of women who do have an opportunity to seek higher education and, and how do the gains made by those fortunate few, if you will, mm -hmm. affect the rights of other women in mm -hmm. society? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's absolutely the case that we have so much, we have so much further to go when it comes to ensuring true equity in higher ed access. You know, one hope I have is that the people who managed to move into higher educational opportunity who were historically omitted bring with them some commitment to expanding opportunities. And so, you know, whether it's thinking a little more outside of the box about how we expand access. You know, for me, one of the great um, sort of disappointments of U.S. higher education policy is that we're so wedded to existing policy 
approaches. And so we are very slow to deviate from federal financial aid, um, from student loans. We're now seeing this shift from grants in aid toward loans as the government becomes a little more um, hesitant to provide um, outright support. Um, and thinking about things like regulatory policy and maybe a new style of regulatory policy or just a new type of student support from the government is something that we should do, and I don't think we're doing enough of it. Mm -hmm. And with Title IX, so the origins was employment discrimination. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how the legislation or the law expanded to cover benefits of students, mm -hmm. you know, women students? Mm -hmm. So that came out, I would say for sure, during the congressional hearings when woman after woman would come and testify and talk about some slight that she experienced. You know, there are these interesting stories of, you know, my favorite is one that mm -hmm. Professor Lavelle pointed out the other night at uh, Flyleaf Books when we talked about this work. There was, I don't know if you have, if there's I a do, I can, I can read it. It's mm -hmm. really interesting. So this was a, an applicant. Um, she, in her four years in high school, uh, she was a straight-A student. She presided over the Girls Nation program. She was a former governor of the Oklahoma Girls State program. And when it came time to apply for college, she set her sights on her dream school, the University of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And despite this solid academic and, uh, you know, her academic and leadership background, her application to UVA was returned with a note that simply said, women need not apply. Mm -hmm. And it, it turned out, she turned out to eventually... Uh, be married to Senator Birch Bayh, who was one of the, you know, I guess, strong, uh, strong proponents mm -hmm. of Title IX. Mm -hmm. And stories like that were typical. And so women came to these hearings and shared these stories. And then finally, Edith Green said, you know what, we're going to create a, regula a regulatory policy uh, in order to try to rectify this. And so at first she was going to amend the Civil Rights Act. And the, the proponents of the Civil Rights Act asked her not to. Mm -hmm. They said, you know, this is still pretty new legislation. We see it as being somewhat vulnerable. You know, please build your own policy. <laughs> so she decides to tag it on to an omnibus, like a rambling omnibus reauthorization bill. So it was a, a big bill reauthorizing the financial aid programs from the National Defense Education Act and the Higher Ed Act from 65. And so they just snuck it in, and, and a number of women's activists came to them and they said, you know, we're ready to march, we got buttons. And Edith Green said, do not march, do not pass out those buttons. We are going to do this stealthily, because if, if the men know what's in this bill, they're not gonna vote for it, they'll vote against it. But otherwise, you know, it'll just slide through. And that's essentially what happened. You know, I would argue it wasn't perfectly stealthy. There was still <laughs> some discussion of it. But, I mean, you know, just the politics of how they got that through was really interesting. But as late as 1972, mm -hmm. why was there still this, uh, th this opposition, mm -hmm. particularly in light of the more activist women's movement mm -hmm. uh, that had uh, emerged uh, 1965, 1968, and uh, going forward? You know, my sense is I've heard that period of the women's rights movements described as the doldrums of the movement. So it's not that the movement was completely absent from the political landscape, but I think they were really working to get their their acts together. Like they were still trying to figure out like which move, which organizations would take the lead. Uh, Bernice Sandler told me during an interview for this about just, you know, how for some of the groups were seen as so radical, you know, that the self-respecting women were not going to join, you know, now, for example, it was just seen as, as, as really over the top. And so my sense is at that point, 
you know, a lot of the women's organizations were focused on the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and a little less so on education. And so that, in 1972, there was room for a very stealthy, elite-driven policy change. And that changed by 1976, when institutions were wondering, how on earth do we implement this Title IX policy? And then the government had to pass down some some specific um, details for the regulation. And that's when we saw athletic associations and athletic athletic directors and so many other people get involved in, in the marches and the protests and all of that. Well, in, in fact, it was really the uh, athletic complex or athletic world that really promoted uh, the uh, impact of, uh, of, of Title IX by going after uh, equalization of salaries, uh, equalization of uh, 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 of, of women, uh, opportunities for women to participate in intercollegiate uh, 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 activities uh, at that at that time. You know, Professor Joyner, uh, when I when I first read this book and, and started talking with Dr. Rose, that's really how I kind of remember Title IX. That's how a lot of us think about it, and it's really interesting to see how how she notes that, but then talks about how much more far-reaching yeah. it is as we see today, for example, with access to locker rooms and bathrooms and anything really that's in a in a school and that you need to fairly apply to, to, to all sexes. Um, I also talked just a little bit about a personal antidote that I attended high school in the late 70s. And, you know, I can remember walking in and suddenly we were starting a real girls softball team and a real <laughs> girls volleyball team. And, you know, the, the high schools around the country were waking up and thinking we need to create high school girls teams so that these girls can get athletic scholarships to these colleges that now have to provide them. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I recall... I guess I'm, I'm always remember Delta State, which was one of the king, kingpins in women's basketball mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. throughout the, uh, and, and, and won just about everything uh, going. Uh, and as a result of Title IX, this push at other universities to have real meaningful athletic or basketball teams, right. because that was what was existing at the time, mm-hmm. really came uh, forward and succeeded uh, with the, uh, what it, the, the, the the numerical count where you had mm-hmm. to provide percentage-wise similar yes. opportunities for women mm-hmm. in the athletic arena uh, and ultimately coaching mm-hmm. uh, the salaries that uh, uh, that uh, coaches uh, received uh, the uh, uh, accoutrements of the uh, game uh, had to be similar uh, as a result, of, and that spread out into broader areas in terms of professors and you know mm-hmm. administrators and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you want to respond to that? Yes, I mean I think as a political scientist, one of the most fascinating things for me about Title IX, it's the politics that emanate from it. And it's not at all surprising. So we think a lot about what tends to emanate from regulatory policy or redistributive policy. You know, when when lawmakers decide to redistribute things, whether it's institutional access or institutional resources, they can expect to have some sort of backlash. And so a lot of the tensions and the debates and, you know, even how we think about Title IX, how we've constructed it since 1976, essentially, I would argue is something that we really could um, anticipate because of the redistributive nature of the program. Like anytime institutions and the government, um, anytime the government's involved in encouraging institutions to shift who has what and why, 
people are going to be upset. So it's really fascinating to think, you know, for me, the question is if lawmakers moving forward would like to achieve similar goals and not elicit that same type of political backlash, what might they do? You know, it's typically just giving people stuff in ways that they don't feel like losers or that there are no particular groups that feel like losers. With Title IX, that's not the case. And so going forward, so if we think about 1976 and, and the role that Title IX uh, was beginning to play, was, was that the, the stopping point or, or have there been other pieces of legislation or policies that continue to allow women to take full citizenship in, in, in this country? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I focus particularly on higher ed. And my sense is, you know, there have been interesting state-level initiatives also. So a lot of the state-level lottery scholarship programs or, you know, other efforts to support state higher ed institutions um, or, you know, perhaps more troublingly efforts to to pare down some of that support. Um, So I think that I would argue that lawmakers um, have... We, we've really leaned into the policies and the structures that exist without venturing too far outside of the box to revolutionize higher ed policy um, in really substantial ways. So I think we're, we're sort of teetering along, but I don't know that there have been such dramatic expansions in the years since Title IX. Which raises a, another question I have, and, and this is something that fascinates me about, about your book and your research. Um, so Title IX is a perfect example of legislation that was specifically designed to address the inequities when it comes to, to women. Um, but when you mentioned the uh, National Defense Education Act, the Higher Ed Act, these were pieces of legislation, if I, if I am understanding them correctly, that weren't specifically targeting women, but women benefited from them. That's right. So how much of the growth that women have gained when it comes to uh, higher ed have been, um, how much of that growth has been by design or something that women have kind of taken in a way? Hmm. I think it's definitely a combination. I think that a substantial amount of of the increases in women's access have been the result of quote unquote gender neutral policy and the efforts of expansion that just happen to include them, not as specifically targeted groups. And I think that's also just very politically astute. A lot of times with social policies, lawmakers can be a lot more successful in expanding opportunities for marginalized groups if they create universal policies that provide targeted benefits without being overt about it. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing for women's advances. I think another thing I would point out in terms of the post-1972 benefits of Title IX is that we're seeing women lean into their citizenship on campus. And I think that the policy has changed what women expect from higher ed institutions and perhaps from society more broadly. So as Professor Lavelle said, you know, when you go to high school and you're noticing that the school is providing additional opportunities for you and your friends to play sports or to be a part of a team, you tend to operate in the world in a way that, you know, that that comes to be what you expect, ideally. And I think that's why we're seeing things like the hashtag MeToo movement or movements by young women on college campuses to protest chronic sexual assault. And so I think that Title IX has had this great um, outcome of expanding institutional space and access, but also in reshaping what women expect from institutions. But you also had an increased uh, acceptance mm-hmm. in the public arena mm-hmm. of these disinvolvement, disengagement mm-hmm. uh, by women, and that there was uh, a ready 
audience mm-hmm. uh, available to uh, to accommodate mm-hmm. uh, that. And uh, how, how important do you, do you see that? Well, I, I think it's very important, and I think it's reflected in um, a lot of the research Dr. Rose has done. I found it really fascinating um, the, the number of, for example, bachelor's degrees, uh, male versus female, and how 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 quickly really the the, the women out started out a number of the men during the 50s, 60s, 70s, and also um, interesting. Uh, her comparison between then women's involvement in the political movement. And unfortunately, as kind of uh, we have a little bit of voter apathy over the last several decades, but you still see women who are voting and becoming more engaged in, in the citizenry, you know, kind of moving upward in her charts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would almost argue or I suspect that the decline. So we've seen these overall declines in political engagement in a number of ways. So Americans are somewhat less likely to vote, for example, now than they were in the 1960s. But we also see that women vote at higher rates than men. I suspect that without the educational access that women have gained and a lot of the citizenship building um, effects that come from that education. So we know that people who have more education are more likely to vote. They're more likely to contribute to campaigns. They're more likely to contact elected officials. And a lot of that is because when they're in institutions of higher ed, they're gaining knowledge and skills that make them feel more comfortable with being engaged in politics. They might gain skills like public speaking or composition skills that facilitate that communication with elected officials and make people a little more confident in doing so. So I suspect that without these efforts to expand educational access, we might actually have seen a greater decline in women's political engagement since the 1960s. Okay, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking with Dr. Deandra Rose, who is an assistant professor and director of research at the Sanford School of Public Policy and at the Duke University Department of Political Science, and Professor Mayor Lydia Lavelle, who is a professor at NCCU School of Law and our colleague, and also Mayor of Carborough. Uh, we've been talking about the gains that have been made by women through educational legislation and policy. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919 
419-3474 or the center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Dr. DeAndra Rose, who is a professor and director of research at the Sanford School of Public Policy at the Duke University Department of Political Science, and Professor Lydia Lavelle, a professor at NCCU School of Law. Dr. Rose, Right before the break, you were talking about the decline in voting and how um, the decline may have been even more significant if women had not had access to higher education. And when you were talking about the the percentage of women voting and the rate of voting amongst uh, women, it made me think about kind of the gains that women have made, but it doesn't seem like those gains translate oftentimes into economic mm-hmm. equality. Can you talk a little bit about what your research has um, what what you've discovered in your research when it comes to gains in one area, but not the same amount of gains in, in other areas. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. So, you know, we've seen in recent decades what political scientists and many others refer to as the feminization of poverty in the United States. And I think that, again, higher educational access is something that works against it. But there are so many factors that contribute to whether women make it into the pipeline to actually move into higher educational institutions to begin with. And so I think, you know, again, in terms of the, the outlook for U.S. higher education policy and the room for growth, I think doing a better job of making sure that we're not allowing women from, say, you know, women who would be the first generation or first in their family to go to college to slip through the cracks. You know, maybe we're seeing a lot of increases among um, you know, certain women, maybe women who more easily qualify for federal financial aid programs, recognizing, of course, that those programs are providing less support than they did. You know, the power of those dollars to cover the cost of education is doing less. Um, so I think, you know, grappling with the ongoing challenges and the changing nature of the barriers to higher ed access is something that we have to do. And even in those situations where you have women who have received those degrees, they're still not being paid mm. the same amount as their you know, college-educated counterparts. That's right. And that's the other thing. And so we might have institutional requirements that higher ed institutions treat men and women equally when it comes to admission and programming, but we don't have the same kinds of, or, or I, you know, I'm not an expert in the, the, the workforce employment policies that might do the same, but we still grapple with the wage disparity by gender. And until we deal with that and grapple with it, we're going to continue to see that disparity. Well, don't they kind of explain some of this disparity uh, by the fact that women started to move into these circles later mm-hmm. uh, than uh, similarly situated uh, men and therefore the uh, their history or the longevity of their involvement uh, provides for a different uh, difference in the pay scale that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's there. How would you... 
Well. I think I think that's tr- I mean definitely the life cycle and the trajectory of inclusion or, or uh, sustained presence in the labor force is a, is a factor here. So oftentimes women might rotate out of the labor force when they have kids, or you know according to other like maybe the need to take care of family members. And so again, having a, something that's more of a wraparound system of government support for women. So maybe it's providing um, government support for childcare or additional support for caring for sick family members that might allow women to, to stay in the labor force longer. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting also to think of just the changes in opportunity, professional opportunity for women, because, you know, oftentimes thinking about you know, as an African-American woman, I think about the women in my family, and they've been participants in the labor force for many generations. But the occupations that were open to them, you know, were definitely not necessarily the ones that were going to yield um, a great deal of financial stability. So, you know, thinking about that traditionally, uh, the tradition and trajectory of sustained participation in in the labor force, but also occupational opportunity. Okay. Yeah, this is a, a great discussion. I want to just add in a, a couple of points. One is, I guess I could kind of call it an institutional patriarchy, right? That that even though we have women with degrees and and just just hitting that that glass tower, like the in the law firms, we don't see women making partner. We don't see as many women becoming judges or justices. Although we are some at the Court of Appeals here in North Carolina Supreme Court, but um, district court judges we see women, but not superior court because of traveling. Um, and then just any other a, a myriad of different kind of. There aren't that many female mayors, governors, senators, you know. Um, but to two points I wanted to make in response to something Dr. Rose said. One is we do see progressive local governments passing um, passing and, and progressive state governments passing laws to allow for, you know, extended maternity, paternity time, you know, when, when women have, have children, you know, p- even paid leave when you're having your child. I know the town of Carborough is doing that now. Um, and then a... a, a, a <laughs> but another initiative I heard about today was that um, Chief Justice Sherry Beasley uh, is going to expand the number of weeks that women attorneys who are arguing in the Supreme Court, you know, you can request a, a delay of your oral arguments. I guess previously it was three weeks, and now it's been expanded several more weeks, I think, in a recognition um, as, as we ascend to these kind of positions, a recognition of a way that, you know, policies for greater access will just en- enable us to kind of move up better and faster. Mm-hmm. The change in the culture mm-hmm. yes. uh, becomes a very important uh, part of this. Let me kind of just, just, just morph a little bit over into political uh, participation. Uh, I, I, I recall when uh, Shirley Chisholm struck out and uh, became one of the uh, top women politicians when she was elected from Brooklyn uh, into, uh, into Congress and then took Congress by firestorm as she became very uh, aggressive in pushing for women's rights, mm-hmm. and then uh, ran for president mm-hmm. uh, over the objections of many uh, of, of, of male counterparts uh, in uh, in Congress at, at the time. How have you seen this growth in the development or uh, participation of women in the political arena? Mm-hmm. And I should point out that Representative Chisholm was actually an advocate for Title IX. Like she was invested in the hearings from day one, speaking on why it was so critical that the government remove institutional barriers to women's access. You know, I think that a lot of, in terms of political science research, political scientists have shown that when we see people who look like us 
on the political landscape, we're more likely to pay attention. So, you know, studies have shown that if there is a candidate for governor who shares your gender and racial identity, you're more likely to know who the candidates are in the race and to follow it and perhaps to engage in that race. I think there's something so valuable about having people um, like Jesse Jackson's historic run back in the 1980s, you know, who will actually throw their hats in the ring and demonstrate to the country what a political candidate looks like, what a viable candidate looks like. And I think I think that starts to change um, the perceptions and the expectations of people who might be coming down the line. Uh, so for me, you know, seeing yourself reflected in the halls of power and in people who are vying for positions in those halls is critical. I, I know, speaking for myself, uh, you know, I absolutely love Pete Buttigieg running for president. <laughs> and that's exactly right, to be a member of the gay community and have the, the kind of the first openly gay major party candidate out there with a with a serious kind of run is, is, is pretty fun. But, but you're an example over in, uh, in Orange County you know, of, uh, of someone who stepped out mm -hmm. and uh, made a, uh, a presence and served as a uh, uh, inspiration uh, for others that women can, uh, can, can do it. Uh, how do we encourage other women? I, I'll, I'll tell you one way I do, and it's, it's, it's women, but it's also just, <laughs> you know, encouragement in general, right? Um, every a couple times a year, the second graders come to Town Hall, to Carver Town Hall, and uh, they all gather around in, 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 the, in the room and sit on the ground. And uh, I put up a picture of my second grade class. And we're all there individually, those little individual pictures. And I say, look, there's, that's my class when I was in second grade. Try to pick me out. And I, I go through row by row. And, and they all try to guess. And me and my, friend, my friends and I, we all looked alike, so they're always a little bit wrong. But anyway, once I, once I put up the picture of me, I'm like, that's me. And they're, oh, I got it right. I got it right. I got it wrong. And then I say, that's me when I was in second grade. I'm mayor. You're in second grade right now. You could be mayor. And, and it just lights mm -hmm. them up. They can see me as a little girl and think maybe they could do that. So that's one little way. And then I have them play at being the mayor that day, too. So, uh, um, that's but I want to see that picture. Any, <laughs> any opportunity I have, though, to speak to young folks or, or any, any groups of folks, I, I just I do and just tell them how important it is. And for me, of course, particularly at the local level. Mm -hmm. I think that teaching civics and doing a better job of teaching history and helping young people to understand the significance of politics and being engaged is critical because right now we're seeing a lot of young people opt out of political engagement. They feel like it's too messy. It's too polarized. You know, I'm going to go work for a nonprofit instead. I'm not going to bother with, you know, and I ask my students this every semester, would you ever run for office? And they're like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. And I mean, we're at a school of public policy. You know, these are people who, who recognize the significance of policy as a mechanism for solving problems. But I think there's a lot of mistrust because so many people who have, again, occupied those, those halls of power have, have not necessarily operated in good faith. Mm. So I think there's a lot of skepticism. Mm. Now, we know that you're working on a second book, and I, and I do want you to be able to take some time and share with our listeners what you're working on next. But I wanted to ask you this question. So Citizens <laughs> by Degree, if you were to do a Citizens by Degree Part 2, that focuses on, you know, this is where we've been, this is where we're going, or this is what we can anticipate. What would that what would that look like? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I might I might expand it to look 
So I, I focus on higher education in particular, but I do think that this combination or this partnership between educational opportunity and occupational opportunity is critical. Um, and then, you know, there's also, so there's a question of whether to expand it on the back end, looking at, you know, where do you go from education? But thinking seriously about what happens before you reach higher education. So I've been thinking a lot about some of the gaps between um, educational opportunity and, and the quality of education received at the K through 12 level, and maybe even before there with, with um, access to pre-K, which we know is really important. So thinking about young citizens and the degree to which we enable them to, you know, or we marshal them into full citizenship as adults is a really interesting question. Mm. Well, I, I hope you write that part, too. I'd, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I'd love to read that as well. The rest of the story. <laughs> right. So share with our listeners what you're working on now, your most recent project. So, you know, focusing still on higher education and thinking about how um, public policies that support higher educational institutions can help to support strong citizens and engaged citizens. I'm really focusing on historically black colleges as critical forces in the, the development of U.S. politics historically and the role that they've played in cultivating the development of black leaders. So if you look right now, something like 80% of all African-American judges in the United States have at least one degree from an HBCU. Also majorities of black members of Congress, majorities of African-American lawyers. And so, you know, for me, the question is, maybe there's something, quote unquote, maybe, um, there's something particular about HBCUs that has helped to foster these really engaged citizens. So some might argue that this is to be expected because before 1964, you know, I want to say about 90% of African Americans who pursued college degrees did that at HBCUs. But there's also, I think, a unique culture at historically black colleges that has been uniquely political in a way that many other institutions of PWIs have not been. So, you know, this idea that the U.S. civil rights movement, the architecture of that was crafted in Howard University's law school, you know, I think it's something that in thinking about the long-term trajectory of equal opportunity and citizenship and rights in the U.S., we have to explore and recognize and laud the the history of you know this very unique set of institutions to American history. Well, can you just take a couple of seconds and talk about your motivation since you did not go mm-hmm. to uh, an HBC? Uh, you, your That's educational right. trajectory was through another route, through the That's PWI right. route. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I was a first-generation college student, and so I've always been really interested in higher ed as a mechanism for equal opportunity. So for me, thinking about, you know, the access that I enjoy to higher education and the people like Adam Clayton Powell and other civil rights activists who helped to make that possible, you know, I wouldn't have been able to go to the University of Georgia if it hadn't been for the efforts of civil rights activists who were cultivated in HBCUs. So for me, thinking about you know, my access to educational opportunity and also my access to political opportunity, you know, I have a huge debt to HBCUs, and I would argue that we all do in the United States. So recognizing that broad debt is something that I'm interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. And so where are you in your in your research and when would you anticipate and you're writing a book? Uh, is it, okay. That's exactly right. And so when would you in terms of your time frame, when do you anticipate having mm-hmm. uh, your book? 
No, unknown. Okay. Um, okay. It's definitely okay. a work well in progress. Uh-huh. I've been working on it for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And actually this summer I just finished, um, I have a number of phases of data collection. So I've got a, a national survey that I um, fielded about a year ago. It's a web-based survey that includes some questions about higher ed experience for HBCU attendees and non-attendees, as well as um, interviews with HBCU alums who operate in the halls of power. So I went to the to Congress actually to interview African-American political leaders to get a sense of what their own educational experiences were like in HBCUs and in non-HBCUs. But then also I did this summer a hundred, or it's actually more than a hundred interviews with HBCU alumni Mm -hmm. and really got some rich insights into their unique experiences. And I'm hearing, I mean, just as a a brief preview, you know, these amazing stories about like, you know, I remember not going to class one day and my professor came knocking at my door, like, where were you? Mm -hmm. You know, we were, we were looking for you. And I'm thinking, you know, I have to level up (laughs) as a professor because I don't, you know, I don't go looking for my students. So now I'm just recognizing this, this really fascinating, fabulous standard of care you know, that students have received at HBCU campuses, you know, so just one, one particular uh, theme that's emerging is just the, the campus, um, you know, the campus climate and how the faculty are really invested in student success. Uh, my guess is, my assumption is that, that those that are listening to this program are inspired by your journey and just hearing you talk about the research that you've done, What advice would you give to particularly a young person who might be intrigued by uh, the role of a a researcher and an author? What advice would you give a young person who might want to do what you do? Hmm. I mean, I would definitely encourage that person to take advantage of any and every opportunity to... Um, to build skills that could lead to a career in research so and to explore those different avenues. So if you're interested, if you think you might be interested in research, see if you can get a position as a research assistant, even if it's voluntary, just to kind of figure out what a researcher does, um, to read widely and figure out what kind of research you like. Um, but then also to have a sense of what matters to you. So if there's a particular area or an issue or a problem that really speaks to you, to find ways to become a part of that discussion. You know, and I think for me as a scholar, I'm also someone who feels that we have a responsibility to take part in ongoing political debates and discussions. And there's so much that we can contribute with evidence to the policyscape and the political discourse. And so for me as a scholar, you know, I I feel that it's very important to just, you know, stay true to myself in wanting to be involved in that space. So it's just knowing what what drives you and what excites you about research and about your your, you know, issues of importance and to just not hesitate to jump in and be a part of those discussions both in the academy and outside of it. Okay, well, that's a great place to end, and we are out of time. But Professor Joyner and I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Deandra Rose, who is an assistant professor and director of research at the Sanford School of Public Policy and at the Duke University Department of Political Science, and Professor Lydia Lavelle, who is mayor of Carborough and also a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And, and we'd like to especially thank Professor Lavelle because she was the one that put us in contact with you, and this has been a great, a great discussion. 
And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we encourage you to go out and buy Dr. Rose's book, Citizens by Degree. You can find a copy at at Amazon, at any local bookstore. And uh, if you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to cover, you can also send us an email at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also don't forget that if you miss this show, you can also find us on iTunes in podcast form. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. Mm